Please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Luke's Gospel and the seventh chapter. Luke chapter 7, we'll be looking at the end of this chapter, verses 36 through 50. Hear the word of the Lord. And one of the Pharisees desired him that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with ointment. Now when the Pharisee which had bidden him saw it, he spake within himself, saying, This man, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that toucheth him, for she is a sinner. In the morning sermon, we looked at Psalm 50 and considered the great tribunal that the church is called before and saw how the church falls commonly into one of two sins. Formalism on the one hand, to have the true externals of the religion that is given to us and how we are to worship God, but the inside being hollow, lacking love, lacking regeneration. We also saw the lawless that cared not for the things of Christ, cared not for his worship, but engaged in every sin under the sun to do injury to Christ in his kingdom. Both of these in the church and both of these being sins of the church from Genesis 3 until the coming of Christ to collect his bride at his second coming. We come now, in this place in the Gospels, which presents these two as well. It's often my practice to take a psalm and then to take some truth or theme from that psalm and find a New Testament passage and draw it out as well, to further aid us in our understanding, especially if it speaks of Christ and his ministry. And John, at the end of his gospel, said that if all the works of Christ, everything that he had done, was recorded, all of the libraries of the earth could not fill it. And what a wonder it is to us, beloved, that our Lord Jesus Christ took to himself a true body and a reasonable soul and walked among us. And we have recorded for us in Luke 7 some of that walking that the Lord did. It's wonderful what to see how Luke portrays his gospel, the condescension of the Lord and giving to us not one gospel, but four. And three of them joining together Being one eye, synoptic is the word that we use. Luke, in his gospel, writes in a manner to give defense of the gospel ministry and the advance of the kingdom of God by Christ through that gospel. 
Remember, he's writing to Theophilus, and he writes two volumes, if you will. His gospel, and then the acts that are committed after it. Is giving to Theophilus, who himself is likely either some lawyer or some high official in the Roman court, to come alongside of Paul and demonstrate, here is the kingdom of God, here is what it looks like, here is how it advances, this is its mission. Many people got that mission wrong. Luke, as he writes, he writes not so much in a chronological fashion, that is to say that everything is not one thing after the other chronologically correct, though he won't break from a broad chronology. You won't have the birth of Christ at the end and the crucifixion at the beginning, no. You'll have the birth at the beginning and the events surrounding it, though it may not be in exact order. He writes in a theological manner. And so he'll take large sections and have a theme that he is developing so that we may understand the kingdom of God and the gospel and the Christ of that kingdom. And that's what we have for us in Luke chapter 7. The context of Luke chapter 7 begins at 7-1 and ends at, at the verse 1 through 3 of chapter 8. Listen to this. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of his people, he entered into Capernaum. And from there to 8-1 through 3, we have this section. Note how chapter 8 begins. And it came to pass afterward that he went throughout every city and village, preaching and showing the glad tidings of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him. And certain women which had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary called Magdalene, out of whom went seven devils, and Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's steward, and Susanna and many others which ministered unto him of their substance. It is this section that Luke has these pairings that he gives. And it will be culminated in verses 36 to 50. Now, th these aren't accidental pairings. Luke is writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit to guide and direct our thoughts to understand the doctrine of the gospel especially the necessity of saving faith with the reception of the gospel. So, if you will permit me just a few more minutes, consider an overview of this chapter. Verses 1 through 10, you have the narrative of the centurion and his sick servant. Verses 11 to 18, you have the narrative of the widow of Nain and her dead son. Verses 19 to 23, you have a question and the testimony of John the Baptist of G by Jesus. Verse 24 to 30, you have a question and testimony of Jesus and John. Verses 31 to 45, you have the ministry of John and Jesus articulated. And then in verse 36 to 50, you have the ministry of Jesus exemplified. And these are being given to focus our attention concerning the kingdom and the necessity of saving faith. We see the great faith of the centurion at the beginning. We see the Pharisees come to him, to Jesus, and say, He is worthy to receive whatever you have to offer because of what he has done for our kingdom. 
By the end, we have another Pharisee that has Jesus before him, and in his heart he says he is unworthy because of who touched him. Notice this. Luke is drawing these things out for us to understand. To understand the kingdom of God, the many that did not understand what it was and the necessity of saving faith and the reception of the gospel. In this passage, verses 36 to 50, we have four main characters that we will look at. We won't look at them in order of how the text lays it out, rather in order of their appearance. We have a sincerious saint, a scandalous sinner, a searching spectator, and a sympathetic savior. Let us consider, with the Spirit's help, these four characters and what they have in common concerning the necessity of saving faith, either receiving it or giving it. Verse 36, And one of the Pharisees desired him, that he would eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and sat down to meet. Behold, a certain woman in the city was a sinner. And when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, he brought an alabaster box of ointment and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears and wiped them with the hairs of his head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now the Pharisee which had been in him saw it and spake within himself, saying, This man, if he knew he were a, if he were a prophet, would have known who and what manner of woman this is that hath touched him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said unto him, Simon, I have somewhat to say unto thee. And he saith, Master, say on. There was a certain creditor which had two debtors. The one owed five hundred pence, and the other fifty. And when they had nothing to pay, he frankly forgave them both. Tell me, therefore, which of them will love him most? Simon answered and said, I suppose that he to whom the form forgave most. And he said unto him, Thou hast rightly judged. And he turned to the woman and said to Simon, Seest thou this woman? I entered into thine house, and thou gavest me no water for my feet. But she hath washed me, my feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hairs of her head. Thou gavest me no kiss. But this woman, since the time I came in, hath not ceased to kiss my feet. My head with oil thou didst not anoint, but this woman hath anointed my feet with ointment. Wherefore I say unto thee, Her sins which are many are forgiven, for she loveth much. But to whom much, whom little is forgiven, the same loveth little. And he said unto her, Thy sins are forgiven. They that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? And he said to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee. Go in peace. It was necessary for us to read the whole section in order to understand the context of the first point. The censorious saint. The censorious saint. Now, you little kids, that might be a big word for you. So I'll give you another word. It is someone who is critical. This was a critical saint. You remember, Jesus 
did not always have a very good and friendly relationship with the Pharisees. This was the highest religious class of the Jews of the time. These were the covenanters of the time. I say that, ourselves being descended from such a heritage. You look at them. They had the right religion. They practiced everything correctly. But you see what occurs here. There was a critical spirit. We know from John chapter 3, the night meeting of Nicodemus to Jesus. Nicodemus professes to him concerning the Pharisees. Something that Jesus already knew, but the secret counsel of the Pharisees was this. We know this Jesus is sent as a teacher from God. When Nicodemus speaks to him, he says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher sent from God. You would think that you would listen to the words of this teacher then. You would think that there would not be a critical spirit. And yet with the Pharisees, there often was a critical spirit. Now here's one Pharisee we're not given a great detail about. We don't know if the reason he has offered Jesus to come into his house is because he is particularly looking for an occasion to take back to the chief priest to put Jesus on trial. What we do know is that he has suspended belief that Jesus is the Messiah. The centurion at the very beginning of the chapter believes Jesus to be the Messiah, the very Son of God. He speaks such. He claims that you have authority and that authority must come in a kingdom. He speaks of his own authority as example. And Jesus, having seen the centurion, says, I have not seen so great a faith in all of Israel. This is a Gentile. And Jesus speaks of his great faith. We see this faithlessness on the part of this censorious saint. Consider with me, beloved. This is a man who is a leader in the church. He's an elder in the church, and he's a member in good standing. And he is critical of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And you may be like this saint this morning. That may be your attitude. You may recall a paper written by C.S. Lewis called God in the Dock, which carried the spirit and attitude of the age, that God was the one on the dock. He's the one that's in the hole before the judge's seat on trial. That's what it means to be in the dock. This is the attitude of the majority of the world. To be the one judging God, to be the one critiquing him, to be the one to look and see if there's some uncleanness in him, some reason not to worship him, some reason not to follow him. And this Simon the Pharisee is doing just that. He invites Jesus to his house to give him a look over, not to show hospitality, which is one of the flaws that this man has, but rather to look him up and down and say, hmm, let, let's see what you really are like. I must ask you, are you this censorious saint? Are you one that receives the preaching of the word? And rather than accepting it with joy, 
You say to yourself, I'm going to give this a good look over before I receive it. Now, we're not talking about the manner of the Bereans, who were more noble than the rest of the churches, because they searched the Old Testament scriptures to see if what the apostles said was true. They wanted it to be true. And they said, is Jesus the Messiah? We've been waiting for the Messiah. And here's this Saul of Tarsus, now called Paul. He comes to us. He tells us how he met him on the road to Damascus and took away the scales of unbelief from his eyes. And now he's preaching the gospel to us, saying that he must suffer through and be under the power of death for three days and resurrect on the third day. Give us proof of this. Give us evidence of this. And Paul shows them from the Old Testament. And they flip to the Old Testament. And they study and they say, yes, this is true. This is true. This is not what the Pharisee was doing. The Pharisee was critical. The Pharisee was looking for occasion to not believe Jesus. As said already, he already didn't believe that he was Messiah. Now he's looking for reason to say that he is not a prophet. And we see that. He has him in his house. This wicked woman comes in, does her activity. He says, if he knew who and what manner of woman that is, he wouldn't have allowed her to touch him. He's not even a prophet. The irony of that statement should ring out. This critical man, thinking that Jesus is not a prophet and could not have known what kind of woman she was. But Jesus, frankly, as we will see, knew what kind of man he was, which is exactly why he condescended to enter into his house. You see, in actuality, it wasn't Simon the Pharisee that was inviting Christ. Rather, it was Christ that was inviting Simon the Pharisee, as we will see at the last point. Simon is able to judge some things, but not all things. And we often see this with the critical, do we not? There are some things that are so obvious that you cannot break away from it. And perhaps you've had this experience where you're evangelizing, you're giving the gospel to someone, and you bring the light of nature to bear in their heart, and they say, well, of course that's true. There's no way that you could say it's not. This is Simon's attitude with the parable that Jesus gives. When Jesus says, of the two people, the one forgiven 500 denarii, the one forgiven 50 denarii, who's going to have greater love and affection for this master? And Simon, whether flippantly because he's dismissing Jesus or dismissing the question because it's so simple, says, I suppose the one who was forgiven more. This is the censorious saint. But this censorious saint, this leader of the church, has something in common with the leaders of the church of time past. Ezekiel chapter 16. Behold, everyone that useth the proverb shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. Thou art thy mother's daughter that loatheth her husband and her children. Thou art the sister of thy sisters, which loathe their husbands and their children. Your mother was a Hittite, and your father an Amorite, and thine elder sister is Samaria. 
She and her daughters dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwelleth at thy right hand is Sodom and her daughters. Yet thou hast not walked after their ways, nor done after their abominations. But as if it were a little thing, thou wast corrupted more than in all their ways. As I live, saith the Lord God, Sodom thy sister hast not done, she nor her daughters, as thou hast done, thou and thy daughters. Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. Pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness was in her daughters. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and the needy. You see this of the saint who is critical in spirit. The formalist is often one that will not help the poor and needy. They are beneath him. They are someone that he cannot touch because they will make him unclean. Not just in a ceremonial understanding, but in a guilt by association type of understanding. And this is the accusation that was given to John the Baptist and to Jesus, which is why Luke draws it out before this account. Here's John the Baptist, and he did not eat with you people. He did not sit with you people, and you said he's got a demon. Here is Jesus, a friend of sinners, who sits and eats and gives the gospel, and you say, behold, a wine-bibber and a glutton. Wisdom is justified of all her children. But here is Simon, the cynic. What does he think of Christ? He thinks Jesus isn't even a prophet. This is a sad statement concerning the faith of this Pharisee. He has neglected to see and understand and have an apprehension of the odiousness and exceeding sinfulness of his own sin. And that may be you this morning or this afternoon. You may be such a one that you are callous to the needs of others because you see them as beneath you. You see them as not on par with you. Or worse yet, you see them as one that you can't take advantage of that won't benefit you. And this wicked Pharisee has the very Son of God at his house, thinking that he's doing him a favor. We turn our attention now to the scandalous sinner. The scandalous sinner. We won't read the whole text again, just a few verses. And behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she saw, knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster box of ointment, stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with her tears, did wipe them with the hairs of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Understand, beloved, when we have here in Scripture, it says, this woman of the city, which was a sinner, this is not Simon's assessment being given to us first and foremost. This is the Holy Spirit coming and telling us the reality of the matter. This woman is a sinner. This woman is an excommunicated one. This woman 
is not to be messed with. And she hears of Jesus and runs to him immediately. And consider what this scandalous sinner is doing. She comes in prepared to see the needs of her Savior met. Now, if you are one that looks to the Greek, you'll understand that when Simon the Pharisee in his heart says, in verse 39, if this man were a prophet, he would know what manner of woman this is that touched him, for she is a sinner. He's speaking in the present tense. Now, when we look at the previous verse, verse 37, it says she was a sinner. There's a difference in the verbiage there. A past tense versus a present tense. She may still, in the visible church sense, be under the ban. She may still be excommunicated. But you understand, the Spirit has been doing a work in the scandalous sinner's heart. She has turned from her sin and turned unto Christ. So when she comes and sits at Jesus' feet, she's doing so as one that is already regenerated. She's not doing good works so that Jesus will look at her and say, that's good, you've earned salvation. That's not what's going on here. This is fruit of repentance that is being shown. This is one that understood the necessity of saving faith. She was lawless. She was not a formalist. She hated the worship of God. Almost every commentator that you will look at will say that what is meant by her being a great sinner was that she was a prostitute. Look at the commentaries. They virtually all say her sin was prostitution. This region, this time of Israel, that's a death sentence. Community-wise, you are a leper. As an adulteress, you have no means of return. And it may be that she sought repentance with tears from the church leadership and received it not. And here now she comes to Christ. She sees him reclining, a custom that's not typical in our culture. Well, we sit at chairs in a proper Roman way, right? Our feet are flatly on the ground, and we're sitting with our backs upright. In the Eastern culture, you would recline on a couch, on a bed, at the table. Your arm would be on the table like this, and your feet behind you. And so she's not under the table with Jesus' feet. Instead, she's behind him. She's in the crowd behind, seeing everything that's happening at the table. And she comes in as one afflicted by the Spirit, given a new heart of faith, she comes and sees her Savior. And you know what the first thing is that she sees? With her alabaster box in hand. Dirty, muddy feet on her Savior. And the love that she has for him pours out of her eyes and onto his feet. You see, beloved, First, she's running to him because she's, she understands this is life. 
This is the very Savior. This is the very Word of God. This is the Messiah. I'm going to do him a good service. I don't find it strange what she's doing. The box of ointment, the alabaster box of ointment that she brings. We have three occasions in the Gospels of Jesus being anointed on his feet by women. And I think these are all three separate occasions. One time at Simon the leper's house, one time at Simon the Pharisee's house, and one time at Lazarus's house. Three separate occasions. Why? Because Jesus has been saying for some time now, I'm going to Jerusalem and they're going to crucify me and the Son of Man will be in the grave for three days. Do you catch this? She comes with the vial as preparation for his crucifixion. She gets to the house and sees muddy feet on her Savior. She's already filled and welled up because of what she has received as a scandalous sinner. No help from the church. But the Savior gives her help. The Savior heals her. But you see, whereas the censorious saint would not be hospitable to our Lord, she sees the inhospitality, and it breaks her. And she weeps over the feet. And the dirty feet of Christ she makes clean and weeps over them. In the Greek, the tense that's being used speaks about her weeping over and over and over again. So it wasn't like there was a 10-second weep and it was done. She constantly is weeping as she's wiping the feet of Christ with her hairs of her head. And she's constantly wiping and constantly kissing. Constantly showing the love that she has for her Savior. And she doesn't mind that she looks all muddied in her hair, on her clothes. Because what she's concerned about is how Christ looks before the rest. You see this? She's cleaning Christ's feet, not because Christ needs his feet cleaned, but because he's being denigrated by the critical Pharisee. She breaks the neck of the alabaster box and pours it on his feet, and that perfume would have filled the entire room. And so much so, wherever Jesus walked, people would have smelled it. When he's hanging on the cross, that odor would have wafted through the air of everybody that was there. In the midst of all the stink of the wounds from the two criminals and Christ, you would have this perfume from the three ladies coming from his feet. But you see this. She pours it on his feet, kisses him, weeps over him, and receives a rebuke of heart from the critical saint. But she still remains by his side. And in the end, how do we see? He says to the woman, Thy faith hath saved thee, go in peace. Jesus is saying, Shalom, peace to this woman. What was it that 
you were to receive after you brought your offering to the priest. You would receive the Aaronic benediction. The Lord bless thee, the Lord keep thee, the Lord cause his face to shine upon thee, the Lord lift up the light of his countenance upon thee, and give you what? Shalom, give you peace. And here's the Savior. The last word that she hears from him is, go in peace. For the scandalous sinner. Beloved, you may be a scandalous sinner. Your sin is not too great to be washed away by the blood of Christ. Do not think that. Do not think that your sin will bar you from Christ's saving righteousness. He calls upon you to come to him, to come readily. You have this cynic Pharisee. You have the scandalous sinner. You also have the whole crowd around watching. They only get one verse. Verse 49, And they that sat at meat with him began to say within themselves, Who is this that forgiveth sins also? We have the searching spectator. This is a dangerous position to be found in, beloved. To be in the position that Elijah found Israel the day that he battled the sons of Belial, of Baal, on Mount Carmel, to say to Israel, choose ye this day who you will serve. If Baal be God, serve him. If Jehovah is God, serve him. And here you have these spectators that are still trying to make up their mind about Jesus. You began with this critical one, and then you have these people that were agnostic. We don't know what to make of them. You see that throughout the whole chapter. People not sure. John the Baptist sending his disciples. Are you the one that we're to find? Or do we look for another? Jesus cannot be simply a good man. He's either a Messiah or the greatest shyster that ever lived. There's no in between here. And many people in the world are spectators of Christ. They love the Sermon on the Mount. They love the sayings that he have, and they say, look at that, it's equal to what you see with Gandhi. Beloved of a truth, if Jesus is not the Messiah, then he's a shyster. He's a wicked man. He's the most wicked man ever to claim to be the Son of God and not. If you are a spectator this morning concerning Christ, understand these are the two extremes, and rightly so. And this is what you must conclude. Either he is the very son of God or he's the son of the devil. You can't be halted between two opinions. You must choose or on the last day the Lord will choose it for you. Your knee will bow and you will confess him as Lord as you are thrown headlong into the lake of fire. You understand this? This is serious business. You have the very Savior laid before you. And you cannot have this spirit of suspended belief. Who is this person? Who is it that can save sins also? The answer should have been rhetorical, should it not? 
the one who was sinned against. He is God. He is fully God, very God of very God. But they couldn't bring themselves to say that. Instead, a few weeks later, you're going to hear them echoing over and over again. Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Give us Barabbas. They made up their minds. And many people, when they receive the free offer of the gospel and sit on it and do not take hold of Christ by faith, end up in that category. If the Spirit, by His call, is speaking to you, you must respond. Those that are the Lord's will be effectually called. But understand, everybody begins with a general call. And to those that are faithful with one form of light, God gives greater light. Understand this. If you reject Christ, that is your own free will doing that. You reject Christ, it is because you have chosen to do so. And you will give an account for it. Are you just a spectator of Christ? And come every Sabbath day to the worship. Because it's different than the other places that worship. We don't have the smoke machines. We don't have the strobe lights. We don't have the bells and smells. We have something that's very simple. Something after the manner of the apostles that's been handed down. And you like it because it's not like everything else. You're merely a spectator. That's a sad place to be in. Merely being a spectator also means that you're not savingly enjoined to the body of Christ. You're like the branch that's been broken off from the vine. Does not have that sustenance drawing from it. Not able to bear fruit. And so you're perpetually left a spectator. We have one last person to look at. That is a sympathetic savior. And here's where we'll return to each case before. The sympathetic savior. Jesus, for 30-some years, walked the earth in his humiliation among us. And we would be wrong to say he's only sympathetic to the scandalous sinner. He's sympathetic to all three parties. Notice his sympathy to the critical saint, the censorious saint, the cynic Pharisee. First, he sympathizes with his frame by coming to his table, entering into his house. He sits with him at meat. The interesting thing is that in Eastern culture, you're not supposed to criticize your host. That is a big taboo. And yet Christ, out of sympathy, could not bear the lies of Simon's heart. And so what does he do? He speaks to Simon after Simon in his heart says, if he were a prophet, so Christ in his heart is no longer Messiah, wasn't a Messiah, 
He's not a prophet anymore either. If he was a prophet, he would have known who and what manner of woman this was that touched him. So Simon himself says, if he were a prophet, he would know the intents and the thoughts of that woman. And the sympathetic Savior says to Simon the thoughts and intents of his heart. Do you see that? Simon is sitting in a place of judgment, and the sympathetic Savior condescends and says, Simon, I have something to say to you. He rebukes Simon. He chastens this covenant child in love. And he says to him, you lack hospitality. This woman came in. And she has washed my feet with her tears. You didn't wash my feet. And that's common courtesy to anyone. Even Gentiles, you'd wash their feet and you treat me worse than one of them. Your own kind. Love that centurion who's a Gentile because he built you a synagogue. I am the temple of the very God and you hate me. Destroy this temple and in three days I will repair it. He says to him, Furthermore, you gave me no kiss. Where's, where's the kiss of brotherly love? Greet one another with a holy kiss. There was no kiss of brotherly fellowship. This woman hasn't ceased to kiss my feet. As far as the human body is concerned, which is a better place to kiss, the head or the feet? The head. The head. And yet this woman kisses our Savior's feet. Now, why would that happen? Why the alabaster box on the feet? Why the kissing of the feet? Because of what Isaiah says. Beautiful are the feet of them that carry the gospel. She sees the beauty of Christ's feet and doesn't care what they look like physically. Kisses them because of whose they are, because of the message of the gospel that he is. And Simon can't even bring himself to kiss Christ on the cheek, which was a common custom. Jesus speaks further out of sympathy for his brother. He says, one more thing. You didn't anoint my head with oil. I know you have it. You have plenty to spare. You didn't anoint me with oil. Keep me from the beating of the sun. Refresh me. This woman broke that alabaster box. Expensive material. Some have said that what she brought, and the same is said for the other two ladies, was a year's wage. And think about that. How much is your salary? Can you imagine pouring that entire salary into one thing to be used within five minutes and never to be reused again? You know, the scriptures teach that the price of a harlot shall not enter into the temple. And I think that we can, through good and necessary deduction, say that what she brought forward was not the money from her prostitution. She had gotten rid of that. Rather, this was the money earned 
from a godly labor that she was doing. A fruit of repentance. Her fruit of repentance poured out on the Christ's feet. How much have you shown your love for Christ? You who claim to know the Christ, you who claim to have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, what does your fruit of repentance look like? What do your good works look like? Which are a confirmation of being justified by faith, of having saving faith. Do they pair up to this woman? The Lord is further sympathetic to the critic. He gives to him a parable to help him along. He's not picked up on this yet. He's, we don't see anything to say to us that he's pricked in conscience for violating hospitality. And the Lord helps him along. He tutors him. He gives to him a parable. And one that's easily understood. Typically, when the parables are given... They're given to sift the wheat from the chaff, right? The Lord gives them. They're hard to understand. He has to give you the the thing that helps you to translate what the parable is about. He's got to give you the cipher. This one is very obvious. It's a rhetorical parable. It tells a story about two people that owed money to a master. One 500 pennies or denarii. The day's wage, 150. He says, one day he frankly forgave them both. Which one will love him more? Jesus gives to this critical saint what we would consider a softball question. Maybe you've sat at Presbytery and you've seen a young man come up for licensure. There's always those softball questions, right? Who are the three major prophets? Who is a few... Godly people from the Reformation. What about some wicked people from the Reformation? Softball questions. Jesus gives to this doctor of the Pharisees a softball question. And Simon's response to him is, I suppose, the one that received more. Debt forgiveness. Jesus closes with a condemning searching response to convict his heart. This is the last word that we see Jesus speaking to Simon the Pharisee. That she loves me much because she has been forgiven much. As far as we know, Simon the Pharisee died in his trespasses and sins. On the last day, we'll find out what happened to Simon the Pharisee. But understand It is a fearful thing to find yourself in that position. You see the sympathy of Jesus, though. Who received the most attention? It was Simon. Simon, the one that was the formalist. But see his sympathy now to the scandalous sinner. She had been rebuffed by the church and by others, and rightly so. And Jesus, out of sympathy, notes her sin. You see, it's a very unloving thing to act like sin's not a problem. 
And that's what we have in our culture today. So you'll have people that will say, you know, you can't judge. That's what the Bible says. Judge not lest ye be judged. Forget the rest of the part. It's whatever judgment you give, you're going to be judged by. So you are to judge. You just better be very careful in how you judge. Or the woman caught in adultery. They see that as an instance of here is a repressed woman. And Jesus, when all the people are gone, says to the woman, Where are your accusers? Nowhere, Lord. Neither do I accuse you. And they stop there. But he says to that woman what he says to this woman, Go and sin no more. He says flat out to the entire company, I know she's a scandalous sinner. Not all sin is equal. Some sins are more heinous in nature. By their degree, by their propensity, by the person committing them, by the longevity of that sin, by its reaching influences. And this woman with her sin sinned greatly. And Jesus says, she has sinned greater than you, Simon. Yes, it's true. I am not debating that. But in sympathy, after all that she has done, and notice that Jesus doesn't push her away. He could have said, look, we are doing something here. But he doesn't. He knows who's behind her. He has all knowledge. And he knows what's going to happen. He has decreed it to happen. You understand that? Jesus Christ is there in the Pharisee's house decreeing that she is to come behind him and do what she does. And she submits to it. And he turns to her after dealing with Simon, after publicly declaring to everybody, I know she's a wicked woman. He turns and says, your sins are forgiven. The very thing that she had not heard from the church. And we don't know everything that's happening there. But here's the head of the church saying to this woman, your sins are forgiven. And then finally, your faith has saved thee. Where did she receive that faith from? Where did she receive saving faith? She received it from the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Father in Christ. See the sympathy of the Lord. There is no sinner so great that he will not be sympathetic towards them. Even Judas Iscariot, he is sympathetic towards. You see what happens with Judas. He repeatedly warns him. He says, the one that takes the sop from me is the one that will betray me. He gives a rather condemning command, that which thou doest do quickly. And then when he meets him in the garden, what does he say? Betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? If you're a conspirator against Christ, would those things not convict you? And here Christ says these things. He does those things as one. Now warn Judas of his headlong sin. And this is why he says he's the son of perdition. But then he has sympathy on the spectators. 
The spectators all see him. They see Simon. Maybe some are drawing party lines. I'm on Simon's side. I'm on Jesus' side. I'm on John the Baptist's side. And they're wondering what he's going to say. Maybe this adulterous prostitute comes in, and there's some other prostitutes there, and they say, we're on her side. Let's see how she gets treated. And they all say publicly, Simon is in himself speaking. They say publicly, who is this that forgives sins also? And just as at times Jesus would pray publicly, he says to the Father, he's praying publicly, verbally, not for the Father's sake, but for those that hear him. He answers that woman for the sake of the spectators that are nearby. And you who are spectators this morning, he has the very word of God given to you. He has shown sympathy to you. How many Sabbaths have you heard the gospel? How many Sabbaths have you come and witnessed gospel-centered worship? It is a mercy to you that you see tomorrow. But as we sang in the very first psalm, in the first service, with a call to worship, today while it is called today, harden not your hearts as your fathers did in the provocation and the temptation of the wilderness. You have laid before you a sympathetic Savior. He is willing and able to save to the uttermost. None that the Father gives him will be lost. Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. This was his ministry. This is the gospel. With his stripes we are healed. With his blood we are cleansed. Who else has done that for you? Maybe you've had a friend that bailed you out of bankruptcy. Maybe you have someone that snatched you out of a line of traffic, almost getting struck by a vehicle. But has any one of those people died on a cross and freely given you an offer of the gospel with their own life blood and presented it before you? And said to you, whosoever will may come. This is our sympathetic Savior. This is the one that receives all the glory of the church. This is our heavenly husband. And if you rebuff him, you show how much you are in need of saving faith. Beloved, I pray that that is not the case for you that you are not one that stands by and looks, that you're not one of the cynics. If you are a formalist, I pray that you would repent. And you take hold of the gospel and its substance. If you're a scandalous sinner, that you would put away whatever thing it is that you are habitually practicing to the damage of Christ in his name. And he would come to his feet and kiss them, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and ye perish in the way. Let us stand and look to the Lord in prayer.
great God of heaven and earth, you who sent your only Son into the world to save sinners of whom we are chief, we pray that you, by your Holy Spirit, will cause the gospel that has been preached to enter into our hearts, that we would take hold of Christ savingly, even as this scandalous sinner did so. That we would not be cynical concerning Christ and his ministry. That we would merely not be those that stand by and watch and wonder. Help those that do not know Christ savingly to close with him even this day, that they would be so convicted of heart that they would not find rest for their head this evening, that they would even take hold of one of the elders of the church here and say, show me the way unto salvation. Give such no rest. Send revival to your people and grow your church. For the name and sake of Christ, our elder brother, in his name we pray and give all the praise. Amen.